Hello, and welcome to the Recorded Internet Broadcast. I'm Jared, and you're Tim, and we're your hosts today. And today we'll be asking the question, is the current climate the ideal climate? And we'll be discussing this and maybe some potential answers, and we'll be making some references to some different sets of data and websites, and we'll put those references on the website at recordedinternetbroadcast.com. And so you can check there if you'd like to see any of those. As we have in the past, we're just going to reference some information from Wikipedia to sort of just define what climate means. And so climate is defined as the long-term average of weather, typically average over a period of 30 years. More rigorously is the mean and variability of meteorological variables over a time spanning from months to millions of years. Some of the meteorological variables that are commonly measured are temperature, humidity, atmospheric pressure, wind, and precipitation. So weather is like the things that you experience day to day, like how hot it is, whether it's raining, whereas climate would be considered a longer term average of those. Exactly. Not just a single day or even not just a single year. Yeah. What do you think about the climate that you live in? Well, I've primarily lived in New England and the weather year seems fine. I'd say sometimes in summer, it just feels like too hot. And sometimes in winter, it feels too cold. But I feel like that's just like a thing that's true of seasons. Generally, if you have changing weather, there will be a time where you're not ready for it yet. Unless you live in San Diego, then it's fine. Yeah, well, then it doesn't change. <laughs> it's the whole thing. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, overall, it, it seems pretty good. Do you think that the climate in New England is ideal? Ideal? Wow. Uh, yeah, I mean, that seems like a harder thing to answer. For me, I would say from my personal experience, I don't notice it being particularly bad. I don't know if I would make changes to it. But, you know, I'm I'm not trying to grow my own food or interacting with other systems that are dependent upon temperature and precipitation and those other measures that might actually be quite heavily affected by that. And so... For me, from my personal experience, it seems fine, but I'm sure there's aspects of New England that are more challenging for different people that are whose work is more interactive with the weather. That makes sense. I also quite like the climate of New England. There's a few small things I would change. Like you said that the definition of climate is the mean and the variability of these weather factors like temperature and rain and stuff. Mm. And there are times where I prefer a little less variability like i find that in the winter when it gets too warm things get kind of gross and they can also like when the temperature in the winter varies more than i expect it can interrupt my plans and i don't like that so i would prefer a slightly less variable climate especially in the winter or like a slower variation within a season you want it to stay a certain range of temperatures but then you're fine with a larger swing over the course of several months I would agree. Yeah. It makes it easier to plan that way. Yeah, definitely. I feel like I have this experience of the weather too, where uh, whenever I think about something that's happening this year, I imagine that I can think back to like five years ago and that it wasn't that way. And I'm pretty sure I'm wrong, but sometimes I feel that way about that variability where I feel like it's February and there's a week of hot weather and then it goes back to cold and then it goes back to hot. This is insane. I just want to bike in one temperature. <laughs> I don't understand what's going on. That does make it really difficult to adapt to it. All right. So as we've just briefly discussed, it's pretty easy to know and classify the climate in which you live because you experience it every day. 
But of course, based on where you are on the earth and whether you're near an ocean or not and where the wind is blowing, there can be quite a vast range of climates available. Obviously, from deserts to rainforests to high mountains to frozen tundra, that sort of thing. And so when people want to talk about climates, it's helpful to have a classification system so you can compare two similar climates in two different parts of the earth, for example. One such system is called the Köppen system, or its upgraded counterpart called the Köppen-Geiger system. And this system divides different climates into five main groups, lettered A through E. And those five groups are called tropical, dry, temperate, continental, and polar. And within these groups, they're further subdivided by how high the average minimum temperature gets for a certain number of months and also how much rain there is. So you could have like a group C, for example. And if in this group C, you get a lot more rain or a lot less rain, you'd have one of these letters different. And then mm. if you reach a certain average temperature in the summer months, you get a separate letter for that as well. And so, for example, group C, warm summer, high rain, or group C, hot summer, low rain. And those all have these different sub-classifications. So it sounds like there isn't a classification necessarily for the variability that we were just complaining about. That's true. My understanding is that these subclassifications are based only on the extremes of the mean, not the extremes of variability. So we can look up how New England is classified according to this scale. And these subclassifications for New England are called DFA and DFB. And the D stands for continental climate. And the difference between DFA and DFB is that DFB, which is sort of in the north of New England, has at least one month where the average temperature is below zero. Hmm. And when I say below zero, I mean below zero degrees Celsius or 32 degrees Fahrenheit. So it's D for continental. That's right. Perfect. <laughs> there is a C. There are classifications that start with a C, mm. but those aren't continental. Yeah, that wouldn't make sense. C must be for Balkan. <laughs> Must be. Yeah. Yeah. So while researching this topic, we came across a paper, and the title of this paper is Present and Future Köppen-Geiger Climate Classification Maps at One Kilometer Resolution. And this paper was published by a group called Beck et al. from the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering at Princeton in a journal called Nature Scientific Data in 2018. And in this paper, they have some really nice high-resolution maps that show the current climate classification everywhere in the world, and then an expected climate classification in the future, also everywhere in the world. So it's really interesting to look at some places that you may know or where you live and see if the climate classification might change, for example, from temperate to tropical or continental to tropical or, and so on. And in this analysis, they use the current climate data as the 30-year period ending in 2016 and the future prediction as the 30-year period ending in the year 2100. And for the projection, they use this climate model called or initialized as RCP 8.5, which is a model that measures certain inputs of gases into the atmosphere over that time period. And according to this prediction, the climate in 
southern New England is going to change from what's called a hot summer, humid continental climate to a humid subtropical climate. And for reference, this humid subtropical climate is what you experience on the east coast of the U.S. between Georgia and Virginia. And given that we're on sort of the line between the two climates, we could expect the climate to be something like the west coast of the Chesapeake Bay, like in Maryland or Virginia. That seems like a big change for this area, actually. I agree. And the climate in northern New England, so northern Vermont, New Hampshire, and Maine, will switch from what's called a warm summer humid continental climate to a hot summer humid continental climate. So what we currently experience in northern New England will be what it's like in the lower New England area, Boston, Connecticut. Cool. How far north will you have to travel to find those kinds of cold temperatures you're used to once we get to 2100? Right. So when we're traveling in the year 2100, we're going to have to travel um, about 400 miles north, close to the shore of the Hudson Bay, if you want to get the same sort of conditions that you're experiencing currently in northern New England. Okay. My hiking plans are going to have to change that stuff. Yeah. And your longevity. My longevity is going to have to change? Yeah. Your expected longevity. Nah, I'll definitely make it that far. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Though it'll be harder to cold water swim as it gets hotter. Uh, sweet. That paper is pretty interesting, and we could probably look at it for a pretty long time. But I think we should try to come back to the initial question of, is the current climate ideal? And that map, while useful, doesn't really tell us that. So let's try to come at that question from a couple of different angles. And I think we should just start with, you know, is the current climate ideal for me? So I feel pretty good about it. It seems okay. To your point, the variability is sometimes annoying, but it definitely doesn't cause me any sort of panic or harm. But how about for you? Yeah, I mean, there's times where I envy the stable warmth of San Diego, but not very often. Wow. I was not expecting you to say that. I have watched you dive into cold water and swim around in it like a salmon, and I just don't... I can't even conceive of you living in San Diego. What would you do when it was any given day that's hot in San Diego? I would dive in the water and swim around like an ocean sunfish. Oh, ocean sunfish now. Nice. Okay. I kind of like those. Ocean sunfish? Yeah. You kind of like them? Yeah. What does that mean? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so it's progress answering this question. <laughs> I just, <laughs> I'm really good at getting off track. I can ignore that. And, and well. I guess one thing I would say about the ocean sunfish is that it has been discovered to have whole body endothermy, meaning that it can warm up its whole body, which makes it unique among known fish. It can increase its body temperature by about 5 degrees Celsius compared to the surrounding water. Okay, you would make a good ocean sunfish. That's what I'm saying, yeah. Okay, but what about for other people? Jim, do you think the current climate is ideal for the most people? I'm not sure exactly. There are a lot of people in the world in a lot of different climates. And there's also been, especially recently, some stories of so-called climate refugees people who are forced to move from their homes due to the climate, whether it's too hot or too wet or their land becomes destroyed or the land can't be used in the way that they're used to using it. And so for those particular people, the climate is certainly not ideal, but 
in order to like answer part of the question of the ideal climate, you want to know is the climate ideal for the most people, meaning the most number of humans, most proportion of humans, whether it's 90%, 95%. And so one thing that's a bit extreme that you can imagine is that right now a lot of the Earth's land is locked under permafrost tundra, permanently frozen land in northern Canada and northern Russia. <laughs> and so I could imagine a world with a climate in which more people could live there than currently live anywhere. So it's possible that given one static look into a different climate, that there could be a more ideal climate than our current one for the most people. One thing I might say about that, though, is that a stable climate is better than a changing climate, especially a rapidly changing climate. And so if you were to imagine some ideal climate in the future where the most land is available for the most uses, getting there from where we are now would be bad for a lot of people. Yeah. It's interesting, too, that the human population has, as far as I know, only expanded for quite a while now. And so certainly the current climate is able to support that number of people. If we continue to use up resources at the rate that we are, will the climate continue to be able to support us in that way? I don't know. But there is almost some aspect of that where it's like, yeah, it is. Right. I mean, currently supportive of the most possible people. Given the data point that we have, which is the number of humans alive, right now, today is the most that have ever been alive. And so, if that were your only data point, you sort of have to conclude that the current climate is the most ideal one that we know of so far. In terms of number of people? In terms of the, the best climate for the most people. It does miss some gradations in terms of quality of life. You know, you just mentioned that despite being someone that I know loves the cold, you would move to San Diego. That's not what I said. Okay. Well, what did you say? I said that there are times where I long for the warm, stable climate of San Diego. So you would move there? To clarify, I don't long for them very often. Mm, okay. There are rare times. I rare see. times. Yeah, yeah, I see. I misinterpreted. I apologize. Even so, I think there are climates that we would say are ones that we would prefer to live in absolutely Um, and i've had some experiences in places that are hot and dry and it's not too bad but really heat generally is i find somewhat difficult to deal with and so in terms of quality of life obviously there's people that complain about the cold but i can imagine there being a more widely spread temperate climate that a larger number of people have a higher quality of life in i don't know exactly how you get there but One thing I might add is that different peoples and cultures have adapted to the current climates that they are in. For example, people who live in very cold environments, like in the tundra, tend to have smaller and more robust statures and higher body fat compositions. People who live where the sun shines all day long versus not at all have darker or lighter skin. And if those people switch to each other's climates, they have issues like not making enough vitamin D or getting skin cancer. And so having changing climates can cause issues based on either your physical body or based on how your culture uses the climate that you're in. And it feels like you're almost returning to the point of the speed of transition. If you quickly move to a different one, it can be quite challenging. But maybe, you know, if your family moves there across generations... Maybe slowly adapt to that situation. I would say it would take quite a few generations, like dozens, not just like your grandparents. 
Okay, so if we're going to do some climate changing, we maybe want to take it slow. I think that would be best, yeah. Okay. So having talked a little bit about the, the current climate and its ability to support people, um, I sort of have this impression that in the past, possibly the climate has been able to support more people, even though it didn't at that time. Maybe the potential for that was higher. And I guess maybe because to what you're saying about the rate of change, I think the rate of change at that time was smaller. And so there was just more time to adapt. And since humans are reliant on other forms of life to live, then other things could also keep up. And since they support us, that was working out well. But what are some other past climates? Do you think there's past climates that have been better or worse than this one? Yeah, so certainly we've been able to measure some recent past climates in terms of the the temperature and the atmosphere during those times by doing things like looking at tree rings or looking at ice cores. But I would say there's certainly some ancient climates that would not be ideal for us. For example, before life on land evolved, it was only in the ocean. And before multicellular species evolved, there were ancient bacteria or archaea that we think became modern-day chloroplasts. And chloroplasts are organelles within cells of algae or plants that do photosynthesis. And so in the process of photosynthesis within these chloroplasts, they turn CO2 and water into glucose, sugar, and oxygen. And as these start to take over the ocean, they transform the atmosphere from a high CO2 atmosphere into an atmosphere that contained enough oxygen for life to live outside of the ocean. And so if we were trying to live during this time, we wouldn't be able to if we were immediately transformed there. It's possible we could live there using technologies. For example, people think that they can make a colony on the moon or Mars, and so they'll have to create these sort of biospheres that have what humans need, such as oxygen. So it's possible that we, if we could teleport ourselves to these ancient environments, we could maybe survive, but certainly not a lot of us, and it would be very difficult. Another ancient environment that we probably couldn't live well in is during the last ice age. Uh, because, for example, the place where you and I are currently sitting would be underneath 5,000 feet of ice, which would be really heavy. That would be hard to hold up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty funny to imagine people on Earth having to build a biosphere in order to live here. Like, when I picture the Earth... I'm not picturing the oxygen, so then to picture part of it and then be like, yeah, there's humans, but they can't breathe. That's so funky. Even though I have a very clear image of, oh yeah, in space, you, I can't see the air there either, but it's not there and it's different. So one thing that we talked about is that there are different populations on Earth that have adapted to their current environment, whether it's very hot or very sunny or very cold. And these adaptations took those people's many generations to evolve, let's say. And if we are forced to adapt to a shifting climate very quickly, it will probably take a technological solution rather than a biological solution. And so I can imagine that it's possible for some number of humans, potentially a very large number of humans, to use technology to adapt to a future climate. Yeah, as far as I understand, there was a book I read while ago about the history of ideas that was quite interesting and one thing it pointed out was that the invention of the sewing needle was a huge advancement around the time that that occurred and you can find traces of that there's this huge expansion of the range of latitudes that humans live in 
suddenly they, they live in way colder places. And so to your point about technology, I actually think that's really what has been driving our ability to adapt to climates for quite a while now. It's just much faster than growing new skin for ourselves. Absolutely, yeah. I, I think that the technological solutions have a much greater effect than the evolved biological solutions, which is evident because people from all different historical populations are currently living all over the world, and it's totally fine. I do think it is worth noting, though, that rapid change of the climate that you're living in can provide difficulties even for some of those technological solutions, um, especially if we start to get into situations where people are trying to live in climates that they've never actually tried to live in before. I guess what I'm thinking of is almost like super hot deserts near the equator as that becomes, you know, there's less arable land and people still want to live there. Like, are we going to just use technology and and go for it? Or will it be like, no, we really, it's not like worth the effort. And it'll be sort of interesting to see how some of that plays out and when, where we decide to sort of invest our, our time and effort in terms of building out those technologies. So you mentioned that there's some climates in the past that can support probably uh, no humans. Very few to no, yeah. I guess certainly when there were 5,000 feet of ice here, maybe there were some humans somewhere else, maybe closer to the equator. But, uh, but certainly the bacteria situation, zero. Without technology, definitely. With modern technology, probably could have gone exploring down there, back there, for a bit. <laughs> <laughs> what climate do you think has sort of the most potential for supporting human life? Where you can fit maybe like the maximum number of humans within the, the land that has that particular climate? Do you mean according to the Copen climate scale that we had discussed earlier? Yeah, we could try referencing that. Yeah. Okay. One thing I, I'm not entirely sure about, for example, is like if you could force all of the land on the Earth to be one of those climates, is that better than more than one? For this particular question of what climate would support the most humans possible. Yeah, I would think there might be even be a difference between what climate should people live in for them to be most comfortable and then what climate do we need for for food to grow you know food is often transported so far it may be that if you were to look at those climate zones and who already lives in them that the highest population densities wouldn't exist in the places that could actually support the most people which is kind of an interesting thing and it's probably pretty unique to like the past 50 years or so yeah certainly in the past 100 years but somewhere in there definitely no yeah. And yeah, I think that's that's certainly possible that the ideal climate for the most humans would require more than one climate. Like you just said, one for getting our food and then one for us to live in. Maybe one for us to vacation in as well. <laughs> one way that I personally would approach this question, if I was trying to answer it, would be to take the data from the paper that we had mentioned, this Beck et al. paper from 2018, because in that paper, they have these climate zones decided down to a resolution of one kilometer. And it's also possible to get population density data for the whole world at some resolution. And so one thing I might try is to use those two data sets and see which climate zone has the highest population density. And that would give some indication about what the ideal climate might be for supporting the most humans. Even if you could potentially change the earth to be one of these climate zones, 
it's almost certainly just an enormous amount of energy output to manage that. And it, it probably makes sense to try to figure out how you can balance the climate zones such that you end up with livable and arable land both near the equator and also near the poles, which sounds like a challenging problem. I don't, I don't even know if there's really actually like a way to balance that in that way. Yeah, without changing the rotation of the Earth, it would be hard to do. If you could do that, then you might be able to. That also takes a lot of energy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I guess we're back at the same problem then. <laughs> we forewent this technology that changed the whole Earth's surface and instead put a rocket on the side of it and spun it in circles. <laughs> exactly. Oh, good solution. Another question we might ask is sort of along these lines of what climate currently contains the most human population density is... Is there a way to measure the preferred climate of humans, for example, by looking at immigration patterns? Do you think that humans are immigrating based on the climate they prefer? That's my impression. Yeah. I mean, I'm coming from a, a bit of a biased standpoint where I think I've read articles that indicate that that's the case and indicate that that's how things are going to sort of continue. Um, but I don't know how to say this in a way that doesn't make me sound like a moron, but um, there's like... Keep that in, Juliana. <laughs> right before the intro <laughs> that's where that should be inserted uh, there was a paper that came out that was like if you put people in a hot room they just like are matter and just like are like shittier people to one another and it's not much it's like two degrees celsius is all you need to get people to be like quite irritable and someone took that paper and then wrote an article about, like, before climate change really started to drive people away from, like, where they could have had food in the Middle East, you could even start to say, like, maybe some of this political strife is because people are, like, not in a good place because it's just too hot. And, like, if you really start to look at when the temperature started to rise, you could be like, ooh, this could very well be a result of climate change to some degree. Obviously, this other sources of that internal strife. I don't know how to say that all particularly well other than the way I just said. Yeah, I think I think that certainly makes sense. A lot of wars and strife of the past have been over natural resources. And so you could try to measure cool temperatures as a natural resource. Mm. That's neat to think about. So during this episode, we've made reference to the fact that climates change and there's obviously a lot of uh, discussion around climate change right now. And there's a lot of discussion around how CO2 is affecting that and that it's human driven and things like that. And I think we, we largely agree about those things. But we also decided to sort of sidestep them and just talk about what is the climate like sort of for us? What are our thoughts about how it exists across different areas of the earth without getting into should it change should we be slowing it down? Should we be speeding it up? Any of that stuff. So if you're looking for that kind of information, definitely there are lots of other people that are talking about that, but we decided to sidestep that discussion. One thing that we can do is we can add some links to that sort of more classical climate change discussion information in the show notes on our website. Resources that we think discuss them well and have solid data. Yeah. And on that note, Noah is about to update its 30-year average. So as we mentioned, oftentimes right now, data is being used over a 30-year average, and Noah updates 
their 30-year average every decade, every 10 years. And um, they're about to update it. And in the past decade, we've had the five hottest years on record so far. And so all these temperatures are going to change uh, in terms of what their average normals are. And then the reference temperature will change for when people say, oh, it's like this much hotter than the average. And so they're going to do this whole public education campaign. So that'll be kind of interesting to see how that plays out. One thing I'd like to just mention that came to mind during our discussion is that we haven't said anything about the climate of the ocean. And even this classification that we found, this scale of different climate types, they say nothing about the ocean. But of course, the ocean is just as diverse as the land. And so when discussing, for example, ideal climates or ideal future climates, it would probably make sense to take into account the climate of the ocean. Because historically, humans have relied a lot on the ocean to survive. And given that it's double the size of the land, it would be nice to keep using it. Yeah, my understanding of what's sort of currently happening in the ocean is that, uh, I know we said we were going to dodge the CO2 thing, but because the CO2 in the atmosphere and it's being sort of pushed into the ocean, it's making the ocean more acidic, and that's causing some problems for quite a few forms of life. And so it definitely seems important to be keeping track of what's going on in those climates, even though we don't actively live in them, because it does seem like it's an indicator of both what could be happening to our own climates and also if that's our source of food, is it going to be there? And again, kind of going back to that idea of like, will this climate support life? And then can we use that life to flourish personally? All right. Outro time. You just listened to the recorded internet broadcast. We're glad that you listened to our show. I'm Tim and my co-host is Jared and our producer and editor is Juliana. If you have any fan mail, you can send it to our email address at recordedinternetbroadcast at gmail.com. Please also send any questions that you have. If you want to comment on this episode, any experiences that you've had with the climate, you could also send answers to questions that you think that we didn't ask properly or at all, and we can discuss those in a, in a future show. Links to the resources that we mentioned during this episode will be available on the show notes page on our website at recordedinternetbroadcast.com. One thing to note today is that if you have been manually downloading this show from our website, it is now available via an RSS feed and also via many pieces of software that host podcasts. For example, some top ones might be Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Google Podcasts. This has been the Recorded Internet Broadcast. Okay, thanks. Bye. Clap. <laughs> and now a quick segment about gravity Wi-Fi. So... <laughs> The Graviton. Earlier today, we invented gravity Wi-Fi. Jared will explain the core technology. It moves instantaneously at the speed of light across vast distances. Using a particle that doesn't exist. That we can't measure. All right. Outro time. We fully explained gravity Wi-Fi. Yeah.